Welcome back to Humble Perspectives with Steve Humble. In this episode, I am reading from For Such a Time as This, One Man's Spiritual Journey, Chapter 2, Growing Up. Not everything about my life dealt with theological issues and spiritual encounters. In fact, there were, and still are, long periods when life just seemed to go on without any dramatic events. It has been enlightening to me to realize that Abraham, the spiritual father of all of us who believe God, lived 175 years. None of us knows how many encounters Abraham had with God. What we do know is that the Bible records approximately a dozen times when Abraham had personal encounters and interventions of a more dramatic nature with God. And we know that these took place over the span of about 75 years. In other words, much of life is simply living. However, one who knows God knows that God is present and at work in all of one's life and that there is opportunity to commune with God even in the most mundane moments and seasons. I, however, am all too often dull and not alert. Often I'm not cultivating my consciousness of God, and thus I do not avail myself of all the opportunities to commune with Him and to be a co-worker with Him. This book focuses on my spiritual journey rather than on the whole story of my life. Yet that spiritual journey was not disconnected from the times in which I grew up or from the circumstances of my life. These elements must be considered as well. Although I've already mentioned my family background and my church background, it is important to share a few more details about my childhood in order to establish a context for the events that took place later. Our lives were built around my parents' commitment to God and around my dad's call to the ministry. It would be hard to overestimate the quality of the parents through whom God brought me into existence. Mom was a godly woman. I have many memories of her going to her bedroom and shutting the door and crying out to God in prayer. Mom was the hardest working person I have ever known. Even in her later years when she was severely afflicted with Alzheimer's and had lost her sight because of a stroke, she still talked about the work she was planning to do. Mom was tops in teaching children and in running Sunday school and vacation Bible school. She wrote adult Sunday school material for publication at first as a ghostwriter for dad and then in her own name. Mom is summed up best by my wife's claim that her mother-in-law was the original model for Proverbs 31 woman. If in this writing I do not seem to think, speak much about mom, it's because my relationship with dad seems to have had more influence on the particulars of my journey. However, mom's influence on my character, on my knowledge of the Bible, and on my desire to know and to serve God was huge. Most of all, I am confident that Mom's prayers to God, for me, have released unmeasurable grace in my life. Like all humans, save one, Mom had her faults, but you had to look pretty hard to find them. When I was a baby, Dad was working on a bachelor's degree at Cedarville College, then a Presbyterian liberal arts college in southwestern Ohio. He was also pastoring a small church near there. During part of the first two years of my life, we lived in a 13-foot by 8-foot house trailer, the size of a small camper by today's standards, located on someone's farm. I don't remember that time, of course, but there are three things that have been told and retold about it so that they are like memories. First, the big snow of 1951 occurred while we were living there. Dad often said that the snow had drifted to the roof of the trailer but there was just enough room between the snowbank and the trailer for him to squeeze out the door and begin to clear a path to the outhouse. Second, I have a photograph of me outside the trailer playing with our cocker spaniel. Third, and the most significant thing, while we lived there, my mother contracted the worst form of polio. Polio was a highly dreaded disease in those days before the salt oral vaccine had been developed. Mom had bulbar polio, the most severe type, and the doctor told dad that she would most likely die and that if she lived, she would not be able to walk. She lived. 
and she walked, thanks be to God and to the prayers of his people. The only after effect was that mom could not swallow on one side of her throat. I stayed with another family while she spent six weeks in the hospital because of the polio. I don't know how traumatic that was for me, but mom often told about coming home from the hospital and being broken hearted when she discovered that I didn't recognize her. We moved to Circleville when I was two so that dad could pastor one of the largest churches in our denomination and one of the most significant churches since it was in the denomination's headquarters town. A few months into that pastorate, he also became president of the four-year-old Circleville Bible College. In part, I think, because he was one of the few pastors in the denomination with a college degree at that time. After a few months, he resigned from the church to lead the Bible College full-time. After about three years, Dad resigned from the college and went back to pastoring the same church, which he continued for several years until he became the general superintendent of the denomination at age 31. Dad's ministry changes had several implications for me. On the positive side, unlike most children of pastors in our churches, from the age of two I grew up in one city, although we lived in numerous houses. This meant that I had stability and relationships through these years. It also meant, for better or for worse, that I was always somewhat in the limelight of our, in our circles because of who my dad was. On the negative side, dad carried responsibility beyond his years and experience, even though it wasn't beyond his gifts. This responsibility created internal and external pressure on him that made an impact on our family life and on my relationship with him. One of my favorite childhood activities was to go calling with dad. When we went to visit older folks, I often got a cookie or some other sweet treat. When we did hospital calls, I sat in the car or in the waiting room. Quite often we went to Columbus to the hospitals and once in a while we'd stop at White Castle for eight cent hamburgers. Yum. I still crave a White Castle hamburger from time to time. Our family hardly ever ate out during my younger years. Even on trips, mom usually packed food for us to eat along the way. Given the way she cooked, we didn't miss anything by not eating out. I do remember that sometime in the late 50s or early 60s, the first McDonald's that I ever knew of opened at the Great Southern Shopping Center on the south side of Columbus. And we did stop there to eat once in a while. In those days, you could buy a hamburger for 15 cents, fries for another 15 cents, and a milkshake, chocolate of course, for 20 cents, a 50 cent meal. A few years after McDonald's opened, Ponderosa Steakhouse opened next door to it. A few times we feasted on a ribeye steak, a salad, and a baked potato or fries for $1.99 at the Ponderosa. As a younger child, I remember playing pitch and catch with Dad. He had been a catcher on his high school baseball team and he trained me in catching while he was in elementary school. Then as often as possible, he came and watched my little league games when I played on the Circleville Oil team and later for the Circleville Herald team. In warm weather, Dad and I would go outside to do our practicing. In the winter, we'd play in our small basement. As a child, I didn't think about it, but in looking back, I realized we couldn't have been more than 20 feet apart in that basement. Dad couldn't throw overhand because the ceiling was too low, so he'd throw sidearm hard. It was catch the ball or else since there was no escape at that distance and I especially had to stop any bad pitches that bounced in front of me or I could have gotten hurt. When I caught behind a batter, Dad always insisted that I wear a mask, even in pickup games, which I did if he was present. I found out why he insisted on that mask at one of our annual July 4th Sunday School picnics in Logan Elm Park. After lunch, the men and older boys would form two teams for softball. I had developed enough skill as a catcher that I got to play with them when I was still in grade school. Once, probably the summer after the sixth grade, when I was catching at the picnic, Dad was up to bat for the other team. As he had trained me, I squatted, bouncing on my toes as close behind the plate as I dared to position myself. The pitch came in, and like Casey in the poem, Dad swung the bat mightily. 
when he connected with the ball and it went sailing away. Dad had swung so hard that he came all the way around with the bat and cracked it up alongside my head. I saw stars at three o'clock in the afternoon. The mask may well have saved my life. The blow left a huge painful bump on my head above and behind the ear, but the mask had protected my temple and I received no permanent in injury. Dad, however, forgot to run the bases that time. Our baseball playing stopped during Christmas vacation of my seventh grade year. We had gone to Maryland to visit my maternal grandmother and my Aunt Esther. It had snowed but thawed while we were there. Aunt Esther, who worked in the office of the Frostburg High School about seven miles away, had had snow chains put on her rear tires in order to drive safely on the mountain roads. After the thaw, I followed Dad to the garage when he went out to remove the chains from the tires for her. Because melting snow had formed ice on the chains, he was unable to break the chain loose on the driver's side rear tire. He took the bumper jack from the trunk and jacked up the rear end. Then he lay down on his right side and slid under the rear fender just behind the tire so that he could peck at the ice with a tool. As he was pecking, the car must have rocked because the jack moved and the car fell, crushing his shoulders and chest under the fender. The spring of the car brought it back up enough that Dad could breathe, and he told me to run to the house about 25 yards away to get Mom. I ran. By the time Mom could come out of the house, followed by Grandma Geiger and Aunt Esther, we met Dad walking painfully toward the house, holding his left arm and shoulder. He said that he had wiggled out from under the car, gotten to his feet, and started to the house because he was concerned that Mom might panic or something. We took him to the hospital in Cumberland, where x-rays revealed that his collarbone had broken in an unusual way, almost in a diagonal, with one small three-cornered piece actually broken up and sticking up so that he could, so that it pushed up the skin. It made a bump just left of center at the base of his neck. They could not set the bone, so they simply wrapped him up and let it heal that way. Thus our baseball days came to an early end, because even after that bone had healed, the small sharp bone sticking up caused pain if he threw a ball very hard. Late in the summer of the year, when I started 10th grade, we moved two miles out of town to the new general superintendent's house on Bolander Pontius Road, across the road from my close friend Don Benner. Our house was built on the far corner of a farm that we called the church farm. This farm had been bought by the denomination during the Depression with money that was raised largely by people saving pennies and cans on their kitchen tables. The vision had been to build an orphanage there, but that had never come to pass. Building the general superintendent's house was an early step toward moving the Bible College and the headquarters and more recently the Circleville Camp Meeting from the Old Mount of Praise Campgrounds on Ohio Street. At the time we moved there, however, the farm had been rented out and was still being farmed. Behind our house there was a small field used only for a hog lot and the renters allowed us to fence off a small triangle perhaps 40 yards wide by 70 yards long, bordered by a creek bank on one side and the property line fence on the other. There we built a shed with wood from an old dormitory that had been torn down at the campgrounds so that a new, door, do, new dormitory could be built for Circleville Bible College. The shed had two parts, a stall on the left and a storage area on the right, divided by a manger. Then we bought a horse. Dandy, we named him. For the next three years, Dandy was important to my life. He meant fun and regular chores for me. He provided a healthy pleasure and distraction from pressure for Dad. Dad not only rode Dandy, but also broke him to pull a small plow and to drive a buggy and a sleigh. And even though Dad and I did not communicate deeply, we did relate often around the horse so Dandy helped keep a connection of sorts between Dad and my, me, even when our relationship was suffering. <laughs>
Those were tough years in some ways for me, for dad, for our family. It was the mid-60s. Rebellion was in the air. As a generation, many baby boomers had been spoiled by Dr. Spock's crackpot teaching and by materialism. Although I didn't understand it at the time, in the 1960s, the fruit of our culture shift into secularism began to manifest. My parents did not follow Dr. Spock, and they did not raise us in materialism or secularism. Even so, the spirit of the times influenced me more than I recognized then. It is difficult to describe clearly what it was like to grow up in that complicated time. My grandparents had lived through two world wars. My parents had been born just before the Great Depression, and many of their generation had fought and even died in World War II. They saw others die in Korea for a war that ended in a stalemate rather than in victory. During the outwardly peaceful and prosperous 50s in which most of us baby boomers grew up, the Cold War was in full force and there was pervasive fear of an imminent atomic war. Virtually every community drew up civil defense plans. Many communities and even some individuals built bomb shelters. Public schools had contingency plans in case of disaster. I now realize something of the significance of John F. Kennedy's election as president in 1960. At the time, the adults in our church circles seemed most concerned that the election of a Catholic to the presidency would open the door to the papacy having undue influence and maybe even control in the United States. Many expected that some future pope would prove to be the Antichrist who was control, to control the world for a season in the last days before Jesus' second coming. One of the seven cardinal principles for our denomination was that politics were not to be dealt with from the pulpit, a principle derived in reaction to painful divisions in churches located in both the North and the South during the Civil War. In spite of that principle, I remember Dad bringing up in a sermon before the 1960 election his concerns about what would happen if a Catholic were to be elected. Apparently, his religious concerns outweighed the ban against preaching about political issues. I had no idea then of the hopes and dreams that President Kennedy represented for many Americans, those humanistic and politically liberal hopes later characterized idealistically as Camelot. However, for many, those dreams died with Kennedy's assassination in November 22, 1963. Even in our family, the assassination had our full attention. We did not own a television because my parents were concerned, rightly so as it turns out, that television would have a negative impact on people. They foresaw that television would bring the values and ways of the contemporary culture right into the home and that over time God's people would tend to become desensitized to sin and worldliness. On the day of the assassination, however, Dad borrowed a television from a friend in the used furniture business and for several days we spent most of our time watching the coverage. I remember coming home from church on Sunday morning and turning on the television just in time to see Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin, being led from the Dallas police headquarters on his way to the county jail. We were actually watching TV when Jack Ruby pushed through the policemen who were leading Oswald out through a tunnel. I saw Ruby point his pistol, pistol and heard the gun go off when he shot Oswald. We grieved with the nation over the assassination of the president, even though President Kennedy had not been my parents' choice. I had no idea that Kennedy's death had ideological implications that would impact the whole culture. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, How Should We Then Live?, states that the two primary values of our parents' generation had become personal peace and affluence. By personal peace, Schaeffer essentially meant give me space to do what pleases me and don't rock my boat. By affluence, he meant essentially, I'll do whatever it takes to avoid the suffering and insecurity of the Depression in World War II years and to have resources to do whatever I want. 
Although the basic morality of Christian teaching was still prevalent in the social order, most Americans lived on the memory of Judeo-Christian values, but many lacked personal faith in God and in His revelation in Scripture. Therefore, there was no sufficient foundation to sustain that morality. It had been undermined in the popular culture, in the public education system, in universities, and even in many churches and Christian colleges and seminaries. Intuitively, for the most part, the baby boomers, like myself, recognized this lack of a foundation and the emptiness of these two values of personal peace and affluence. After Kennedy was assassinated, many young adults, especially college students, lost all trust in the older generation. Cultural rebellion against the status quo against groundless traditions and against authorities who represented and upheld that tradition began to grow. The Christian churches were assumed to be a part of that established order and all too often they were. Thus in their search for truth and for worthy values, most younger people did not consider the Christian faith to be an option. The cultural rebellion among the youth had begun to surface in the free speech movement at Berkeley in the early 1960s. A large number of professors in universities and colleges, enamored with humanism, had bought into the utopian goals of socialism. More than a few had gone so far as to embrace Marxism, believing in the promises and ignoring the actual reality of life in Marxist nations. Often, social studies, literature, political sci science, and philosophy classes were used to destroy what was left of students' sentimental attachment to Judeo-Christian values and to inculcate, inculcate in them radical agendas. Throughout the 60s, students in the United States and in other countries as well rejected social rules, values, and expectations and began to work to overthrow the establishment structures that propagated and sustained them. Rebellion alone probably would not have been enough to create a worldwide resistance to the establishment and the calls for change. In the long run, people will tend to fight for something longer than they will fight against something. However, there were two movements that provided many young people with positive causes for which to fight. The civil rights movement that had begun in the 1950s was a cause worth fighting for. Martin Luther King and the other civil rights leaders had learned how to use television news to expose a major cultural sin in this nation for all to see, racism. And in the South, the system of segregation that fostered and upheld it. This sin was all too often sustained, defended, and even propagated, not only by the secular culture, but also by those professing belief in God and the Bible. To fight for civil rights was to fight for justice as well as to fight against social hypocrisy. Opposing the war in Vietnam became another cause to which many baby boomers gave themselves. The United States had become increasingly embroiled in an undeclared war in Southeast Asia, a war to contain the spread of communist socialism, but not a war to defend the United States. Many in the educational establishment resisted the war because of their commitment to socialism. As it became clear that young American men were dying meaninglessly in a political war, resistance to the war spread beyond those committed to socialism. To fight against the war was to fight for peace and to fight for love. That was another reason to rebel against the status quo, against the established order, and against the empty values of materialism. Having learned from the Civil Rights Movement, the anti-war movement started out by engaging in peaceful forms of protest. However, resistance to change by the establishment, along with the incitement from the radical left, led many of the more zealous use to more violent forms of protest and resistance in the second half of the decade. Often dubbed the New Left, the more radical movements sought to tear down the establishment, but most of those involved lacked a clear vision of what it a just order would be and had even less vision for how to build it. Before long, many of the young people became convinced that they would never change the system through protest. Therefore, 
they decided to bail out of the system altogether in order to live in their own reality. Many adopted a hedonistic lifestyle, following in the steps of author Ken Kesey and his friends in the Beat Generation, and turned to the use of hallucinogenic drugs as a means to find truth and meaning, as Harvard professor Timothy Leary had been advocating. They became known as hippies, and they sought to live a lifestyle of love, quote-unquote, most often expressed in free sexual expression, in rejection of personal property, and in communalism. For a brief time, especially during the summer of 1967 in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, the hippie lifestyle seemed to offer peace, joy, and love, which seemed like wonderful values for their lives. Ironically, by the time the hippie lifestyle began to spread across the nation, Many of those who started the movement and propagated it had already discovered that drugs and free sex did not produce utopia. Free ter sex turned out not to be so free. Sexually transmitted diseases began to proliferate. Children were conceived who often were not wanted, greatly increasing the demand for more effective birth control methods and readily available safer abortions. Drugs provided no lasting enlightenment and drug use also led to many problems. LSD, the drug of choice for enlightenment seekers, could produce bad trips and flashbacks as easily as, as, easily as if it produced supposed enlightenment. Some young people actually committed suicide because of bad trips and flashbacks. Some users went on to harder drugs in search of highs, and many became addicts. Others settled into a lifestyle of marijuana use, able to function in day-to-day -day life, but rarely able to think clearly enough to make the kinds of decisions that would produce a life with purpose. Eventually, numbers of our generation moved from searching for enlightenment through drug use into searching for it by embracing Eastern religions and practicing meditation. Not a few begin to delve into the occult in their hunger to find some escape from the physical material machine that was presumed to have developed because of the impersonal laws of evolution. Of course, there were those who simply followed the trends and enjoyed the party life for a season. But many were genuine seekers, and the search is not to be despised. Though these rebellious seekers were not apathetic, they were not willing to settle for comfortable, comfortable but meaningless lives. They wanted to truly live and to live truly. Although they looked in futile and sometimes harmful directions, at least they looked, they did not ignore the inner God-given desire for truth, for love, for peace, and for joy, even though they looked in the wrong direction. It would be hard to overestimate the influence of music as a force in the youth culture at that time. Jerry Rubin, for instance, who was one of the loudest and most extreme advocates of the rebellion, according to his book Do It, saw Elvis Presley as a door opener to rebellion in the popular culture. He wrote that in the 1950s Elvis began to break down the restraints against sexual expression, in white culture at least, by the sensual body movements that he made while singing to rock and roll rhythms. Ironically, there is also evidence that Elvis learned his sensual movements by imitating and exaggerating the motion of some southern gospel singers whose music he loved. The more parents and those of the older generation condemned Elvis, the more he became a hero for the young. It's hard to believe that Elvis soon became a symbol of American culture in the good old days. Folk music became identified with the 60s protest movement because of the work of musicians such as Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Barry McGuire. Of course, the roots of the relationship between folk music and protests go back further, at least to songs of the labor movement in the early 1900s, to the songs of Woody Guthrie, for example. Dylan especially was seen as something, as something of a prophet to young culture. In the mid-60s, Dylan united the protest emphasis of folk music with the electric and rhythmic sounds of rock music, thus helping to open the door to rock music becoming the voice of the culture 
of rebellion. About that time, along came the Beatles with their mop-top haircuts. Their early music seems innocuous enough in content, much of it consisting of catchy sounds but rather silly and childish lyrics about romantic love. However, the Beatles quickly became symbols of the rebellion, and their music helped spread first the message of enlightenment through drugs, and later the message of enlightenment through Eastern religion and transcendental meditation. Other musicians, such as the Rolling Stones and Janis Joplin, seem to give themselves over completely to rebellion and sensuality. They became living symbols and examples of hedonism, living without restraint, doing whatever they pleased in their pursuit of meaning through pleasure. The protest at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago and the three-day party at Woodstock Music Festival in 1969 were climactic moments in the cultural rebellion. The 1968 protests brought elements from the spectrum of the rebellion together in political action. This is seen most clearly in the much publicized trial of the Chicago 7. Actually, eight major leaders of the youthful rebellion were arrested in Chicago. Seven were tried together, hence the title. Tom Hayden, who would later become the husband of Jane Fonda and become a U.S. Congressional Representative from California, and Rennie Davis were co-founders of the radical and sometimes violent group Students for a Democratic Society. David Dellinger was a pacifist and the editor of Liberation Magazine. Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were essentially anarchists who united the hippie lifestyle with political activism and were popularly called yippies. Lee Weiner and John Freunds were young community organizers, the job description that would later identify President Barack Obama. Bobby Seale was chairman of the violent Black Panther Party. Seale, in the end, was not tried with the others. These men represent the conjoining of separate facets of the youth rebellion in one attempt to change the establishment. The lyric, lyrics from Graham Nash's song Chicago echoed the agenda of the protesters at the 1968 convention and also expressed support for the Chicago 7 and especially for Bobby Seale. Won't you please come to Chicago for the help we can bring. We can change the world, rearrange the world. It's dying to get better. Politicians, sit yourself down. There's nothing for you here. We can change the world, rearrange the world. It's dying if you believe in justice. It's dying. And if you believe in freedom, it's dying. Let a man live his own life. It's dying. Rules and regulations, who needs them? Open up the door. We can change the world. The Woodstock Festival and Concert held on a farm in upstate New York was idealized as an example of the utopia of which many of that generation dreamed. The dream for a world of freedom, peace, and innocence, a world in which every person was significant according to his or her own definition of himself or herself. Those days that that dream or nightmare of self-definition is widespread and perhaps even more desire. These days, that dream is widespread and perhaps even more desired. Joni Mitchell elucidated the dream in her song, Woodstock, 1970, mixing together references to the biblical Garden of Eden with the New Age ideal of people as divinity, golden stardust, who can work out their own salvation. I came upon a child of God. He was walking along the road. When I asked him, where are you going? This he told me. I'm going down to Yasger's farm. I'm going to join a rock and roll band. I'm going to camp out on the land and try and get my soul free. Then I can walk beside you. I've come here to lose the smog. I feel just like a cog and something turning. Well, maybe it's the time of year. Or maybe it's the time of man. I don't know who I am, but life is for the learning. We are stardust. We are golden, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Reality set in. The dream died for most of that generation as the 70s unfolded. 
The dream of rebuilding the world through political activism seemed to die for many others after the Ohio National Guard shot into a crowd of anti-war protesters at Kent State in May of 1970, killing four students. Riots erupted for a while after that tragedy, but not many really wanted to die in order to change the world. Even a rousing anthem such as Neil Young's Ohio could not stir up enough outrage to motivate people to much action. Neil sang, Ten soldiers and Nixon's bombing, we're finally on our own. This summer I hear the drumming, four dead in Ohio. Gotta get down to it. Soldiers are gunning us down. Should have been done long ago. What if you knew her and found her dead on the ground? How can you run when you know four dead in Ohio? Most young people left the outward rebellion behind after they left college and went out to get jobs and make a living. Some did go on living in communes, and there were some efforts to get back to the land and live a simpler, less technological, and less materialistic life. The biggest lasting changes included the major shift in sexual mores and the political activism for various causes such as feminism and the homosexual rights movement. The reality is that Eastern religions and the occult got a solid foothold in the culture for the first time in the history of the United States. The tension of the 60s is summed up in my own experience in an incident that took place a couple days after the Kent State shootings. A few brothers and I, all students at Circleville Bible College, had conducted a weekly Bible study for a group of teens living in a halfway house type situation on the premises of the Ohio State Fairgrounds. Having heard that a student demonstration to protest the shootings was going to take place at the Oval, a park-like area on the Ohio State University campus. When the Bible study ended, we naively decided to drive over and get a hamburger at the McDonald's across High Street from the Oval. We hoped to be able to see what a demonstration was like. As we neared High Street, driving west on 15th Avenue in John Meadows' red and white Chevrolet, we began to see thousands of young people on the streets and we saw several fire trucks and emergency vehicles in that area of fraternity houses and student rentals. We also saw a lot of fog. I assumed it was fog because I didn't smell smoke. And it was all around us and a few blocks ahead of us. We expected to see one of the many fraternity houses on fire. We were wondering aloud why our eyes had begun to burn. I was aware of an increasing feeling of tension, anger even, in me, without any rational reason for it. Suddenly as we drew near the fog, we heard booms and saw something like cans coming through the air toward our car. It was only when a bunch of people wearing helmets and gas masks came toward us through the fog that we realized the fog was actually tear gas. No wonder our eyes were burning. John Meadows whipped the car up an alley on our right. About 40 yards later, he had to turn right, only to come to a dead end. He was able to back up and turn around by someone's garage, and we headed back out, turned east onto 15th Avenue, and headed away from the area. Then we tuned into a local station on the car radio and discovered that the demonstrations had turned into riots and that we were driving in an area under curfew. Our actions were foolish. However, in looking back and remembering the irrational anger that I experienced as we drove up toward the riot area, I can only think that there was strong demonic activity at work in the midst of the human anger and fear and frustration. A significant part of the dreams and ideals of the 60s, I think, is recorded on film in the documentary Woodstock, Three Days of Peace of Music. The first song in the film's introduction, David Crosby's Long Time Gone, decries the world's long dark night of madness and yet holds out the hope that a new day is about to dawn. He sang, it's been a long time coming, been a long time gone, but you know the darkest hour is always just before the dawn and it appears to be a long time, such a long, long, long time before the dawn. 
The film documents the partying, the drug use, the wild music, and the rainstorm. However, to me, the most fascinating segments are the sound bites in which young people describe their experience at this event, obviously seeing it as the pinnacle of their lives up to that point, and as a model, if not the beginning, of a new world order. The idealism of the time is captured powerfully. The most striking image of all for me is the image that ends the documentary. The party is over. The music has stopped. The crowd is gone. What in the beginning of the film had been a beautiful grassy field has become a garbage-covered mass of mud. A few people are wandering around picking up trash. A few others are looking for lost items. The scene is desolate and ugly. What a parable. Then, a few months later, while the Rolling Stones were performing at the Altamont Speedway Free Festival, the Hells Angels, who had been hired to provide security, stabbed and beat to death 18-year-old Meredith Hunter, who may have pulled out a gun. There were also three accidental deaths during the festival. The idealism was shattered. God was not caught off guard by the 60s, nor was he in any way perplexed by them. Christians had for the most part reacted against the rebellious youth rather than to have looked through the rebellion and weirdness to see a generation hungry for purpose and meaning. But God was preparing to apprehend many baby boomers for his kingdom. By the end of the decade, a number of young people in the 60s counterculture began to encounter Jesus. Conversions increased until even Newsweek magazine recognized this Jesus movement in the fall of 1971. The fact that I was raised in a conservative Christian subculture had made a youthful commitment to follow Jesus and had taken my college studies first in a Bible college and then in a Christian liberal arts college did not fully shield me. I was influenced strongly by the times, by the cultural upheaval, and by the spirit of rebellion. Looking back, I regret the sinful attitudes, the wrong-headed ideas, and the unrighteous behavior that I developed during those years. However, I know that God also has worked for good in spite of and even through the bad effects in order to move my life in the direction of His choice for me. The spiritual journey chronicled in the preceding chapters and the influence of the times led to a sovereign encounter with God in May 1970. I entered into a commitment at that time far beyond any knowledge of my own and was, it was to set the course for my life. The psalmist wrote, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your work, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 13-16 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 He, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Ephesians 1, 4-6 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. John fifteen sixteen. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16.9 Even if I were able, this would not be the place to try to explain the mystery and paradox of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Suffice it to say that I have no doubt that God has had his hand on me and has drawn me to himself from my earliest childhood. I need only to reflect on the heritage that I received from my ancestors in blood and in faith. 
I need only to consider the parents who brought me into the world and trained me. I need only think about the church environment in which I grew up. I need only to remember the desire to know God and to please Him that has pulled me from within since earliest memory. There is no doubt that God has chosen and called me. Even so, I'm also aware of the conflicting inner pull to follow my own desires and passions and to walk in the ways of the world around me. Could I have gone a different way? Could I yet? All I know is that God has called and I've heard the call and have chosen to surrender to His will and His purpose. I made the choice to follow the Lord Jesus as a youth. I have faltered. I have stumbled. I have often taken undesirable detours. But the call remains and the choice is made as well. That call and that choice brought me to Circleville Bible College in the fall of 1967. The call and the choice brought me to faith in the fact that I've been justified before God and Jesus Christ. The call and the choice got me involved in that early morning prayer meeting. The call and the choice led me to that prayer room in the old block dorm where I surrendered myself, offered up my future successes and or failures to the glory of God. The call and the choice led me into an ongoing and growing walk with God that is sustained by following the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The morning prayer at CBC continued, not just for three weeks, but throughout the last three semesters that I was in school. About a dozen students became regulars. As an informal gathering, there was no designated leader for the gathering. In the absence of formally recognized leadership, however, leaders do emerge, whether formally or informally. Thus, over time, John Meadows and I became the non-leaders of the prayer meeting. We even developed our own traditions, including closing our time of prayer by singing the doxology, followed by shouting out a cheer, V-I-C-T-O-R-Y, victory is our battle cry. John and I became close friends as we prayed together, although we had not always been friends. In fact, in our younger years, we knew of one another, had formed opinions about each other, and had no desire to become friends. John's mother, Dorothy Meadows, was a well-known evangelistic preacher in the Churches of Christ and Christian Union, and she held a number of leadership positions. She and my parents knew one another well. Over the years, she had preached several times in the church dad pastored. Her ministry in youth revivals and youth camps was a positive influence in my life. John's father was a member of a different denomination, so he was seldom seen in our circles. Therefore, I knew of John only through his mother, and in spite of my high regard for her, I developed the opinion that John was something of a mama's boy, maybe even a sissy. On the other hand, John had come to the opinion that I was something of a tough guy or hoodlum. I'm sure that my rebellious attitude must have been the basis for that opinion. The truth is that both John's opinion and mine were wrong. My opinion of him had begun to be challenged after we entered CBC and John became a member of the Ambassadors Quartet, a group of gospel singers and preachers who were sent out to represent the college and churches and included some of my good friends. I remember a conversation soon after I had begun college as a freshman when I said to Phil Conrad, who was in the quartet, and in my eyes had been something of a tough guy himself before surrendering to Jesus, it must be rough having to travel where I'm with that John Meadows. Phil replied, actually John's a pretty good guy when you get to know him. That left me wondering. Then a few weeks later, I was walking across campus one evening and I saw that some of the guys had set up a bench press on the lawn. As I drew nearer, I realized that the guy lifting at the moment was John. To my great surprise, I discovered that John was pressing 160 pounds, certainly more than I could bench press, so much for the sissy thing. A new men's dorm was completed by Christmas, and when we moved in, John and I were assigned rooms next to each other. Gradually, we became friends as we began to have contact with each other. Then as prayer partners, we began to respect one another more and more. Late one evening in May 1970, 
just before John graduated from CBC and went on to Ohio State University in preparation for medical missions. And just before I transferred to Marion College, which is now Indiana Wesleyan University, we were together in the dormitory lounge. I have no idea now why we were both there. But a conversation began about something or another, most likely having to do with our future plans. About midnight, we decided to pray together. I don't remember at all what we set out to pray about. However, I do remember that out of that prayer, we found ourselves making a commitment to one another. It was very simple. As I recall, we agreed to stay in touch no matter where our lives took us and to encourage each other to stay in the middle of whatever God was doing. As far as I know, the phrase to stay in the middle of whatever God was doing was a new concept to me. I have no idea what either of us thought that meant at the time. I do know that I felt something of the weight of the times. I know that I had become curious about trends among youth outside the church. I know I had been moved by reports of the revival among college students, which had begun earlier that year at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. However, I do not remember thinking about God doing much beyond what we knew in our small Christian subculture. Several years later, I discovered that in October of that same year, 1970, four Bible teachers had made a commitment to one another in a hotel room in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Although these teachers were from very different backgrounds, each had been baptized in the Holy Spirit according to the charismatic Pentecostal experience. They had been called to intervene in a crisis when the primary leader of a ministry called the Holy Spirit Teaching Mission was exposed in serious sin. Derek Prince, Bob Mumford, Don Basham, and Charles Simpson were on the advisory board for that ministry and had published teaching material in its magazine, New Wine. Because of that crisis, they realized that their own lives and independent ministries were unprotected by any functional accountability. In the fear of God, they were moved to submit themselves and their ministries to one another. These teachers had no inkling at that point that what they had done would become a great blessing to many and a scandal to others. At CBC in 1970, I knew nothing of these men, much less of the commitment they would soon make in that hotel room. Nor did I know that my commitment with John would lead me into relationship with these teachers and to the message that God was entrusting them to proclaim. I had no idea that I had entered into what the Bible calls a covenant relationship with my friend John. I knew nothing then of biblical covenants and their import. Once again, the call had come and the choice had been made. It would not be entirely wrong to see my spiritual journey in two parts. First, the path that led to that midnight prayer in the dormitory lounge in May 1970. And second, the path leading from that prayer, the path that is still unfolding even now as I write.